0: We, as a matter of fact, we Africans are happy, uh, proud that one uh, son of Africans uh, governs uh, the United States of America. This is a historic uh, event. We are content and happy if Obama can stay forever as a president of the United States of
1: America. There's an endorsement you want. Uh, Dictator, silly mustache man, Colonel Gaddafi, giving his Castro-level endless speech on the floor of the United Nations, uh, and offering up that Obama really should be president forever, and he'd be fine with that. If you really wanted to be helpful, he'd have thrown in something about getting health insurance reform passed. I'm Jeff Horwich. This is In The Loop. And I really do love the picture on the front of the paper today, uh, where even Gaddafi's own guy, because Libya's the president of the U.N. General Assembly at the moment, so this guy's sitting right behind Gaddafi, uh, who's sitting there hiding his face like uh, some fifth grader whose mom is totally embarrassing him. But that wasn't this week's only ill-fitting speech. Uh, Sarah Palin went to Hong Kong to give a dispatch from Main Street, USA a conference of international investors. Uh, No good recording of that one, sadly. But as with most conference keynotes, at least the ones that I've been witness to, uh, we can be pretty sure she blew their minds with lots of things that they didn't know already. Sending the goofballs abroad to make speeches uh, was just a prelude this week to when the serious people, finance ministers and such, uh, sit down as they are right this very moment. As a matter of fact, in Pittsburgh at the G20, no doubt they are going to fix the global economy and we'll bring that to you next week. Uh, but in the meantime, today's show, just serendipity, I guess, uh, has evolved into kind of a, a health-focused episode. We're going to call up some people with swine flu and um, annoy them in their time of sickness. Uh, Sandon talked to an inventor who, this wasn't the point of the interview, but turns out to be touting kind of an odd medical device. Uh, plus, we hit 1,500 Facebook fans for the show, which has nothing to do with health care, uh, but we're going to celebrate that with a... Little song I wrote for you all. So back to the the health thing. Health insurance reform in Congress has settled into now kind of a dull horse trading routine. The town halls are done. Tea party people did their thing. The Baucus bill at long last is out there. And now we all just get to sit back and watch the magic. It'll be just like Schoolhouse Rock. But here's a very real possibility all of this and nothing happens. The Blue Dogs and the Dennis Kuciniches can't find any one package they can agree on. No Republicans crossover, not even trusty old Olympia Snow, and it's just a big old stalemate. In that case, if you're the president, what is your plan B? What can you do all on your own? We started calling some professor types and asking that question, and they pointed us to a paper published last month that very specifically addresses that. The author is Madhu Chug. Madhu, thanks very much for taking some time for In The Loop.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: When she wrote this, uh, Madhu was a clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. and uh, also relevant. Five years ago, she was director of health policy for the John Kerry presidential campaign in 2004. Just so we know where you're coming from. We'll say you're the president now in 2009. And just imagine, you know, Congress lays a big egg on health care reform, which Uh could well happen here. Where would you start?
2: I would start, I would recommend starting with the two big federal health insurance programs, Medicaid and Medicare, to not only expand coverage but also experiment with the benefit packages. Another option is uh, doing some experimentation with the payment schemes in Medicare. So one, one idea that's really popular these days is paying physicians and other healthcare care providers based on their performance. So instead of giving them just some lump sum of money for a particular service provided, they would base the payment on how well the physician did in caring for a patient. President Obama, even if a bill doesn't pass, could change how medicare payments are provided. But again, the experimentation can't be on a large scale. It it would have to be on a smaller scale. But that's an
1: example of how I guess some of the the big principles that the president and many democrats would like to see in health insurance reform can at the very least be applied in Medicare and Medicaid. We can show how they work.
2: Absolutely. Hmm. Another great place to try out proposals is the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. So the health insurance program provided to approximately 8 million people across the country.
1: Right, which we're hearing is uh, so great and maybe, you know, why can't all Americans have something as good as, as these folks?
2: It's true. And so when you have 8 million people participating in a program, that's a great way to figure out well, what policy works, what policy doesn't. Is this something that's like, going to reduce costs in the long run and so forth.
1: And does that potentially sort of ratchet up the pressure on, you know, everybody else who's not a federal employee uh, on their insurers, I suppose, if you make that federal employee plan even better, even richer?
2: Well, one thing it does do is it provides a precedent. So people who want these policies enacted on a much larger scale can say, look, we've tried this already in the Federal Employees Health Insurance Program. We know what works there and what doesn't. So they can have some sort of rebuttal when there are arguments like, well, we're not sure that this would work or this would reduce costs.
1: In your paper, you put this in the context of what previous presidents did on civil rights back in the Mm -hmm. 40s, 50s and Mm -hmm. 60s uh, when Congress wasn't able to pass anything meaningful. What happened in that case?
2: So the civil rights model is a nice example of what presidents can do when Congress is not ready to act. So during the 1950s and 1960s, leading up to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Congress was not ready to pass initiatives, anti-discrimination initiatives. But presidents, um, starting from Franklin Roosevelt, were ready and they were getting anxious and through, so through executive orders and proclamations and other types of presidential directives they started enacting civil rights policies so one example is president truman issued an order desegregating the military and President Kennedy required that there be no discrimination for people applying for federally funded housing. And I think in some ways, it was really important for building momentum for the Civil Rights Act. Yeah,
1: that's an important point. Eventually, Congress followed along. Exactly. We're not talking about executive authority here as kind of necessarily a be-all and end-all. Maybe it's to kick off something, you know, really huge down the road.
2: Exactly.
1: I want to ask you about a couple other things in particular that jumped out at me from from your paper. Uh, One was something we've been talking about, seems like for 10 years in this country, uh, drug reimportation from Canada specifically. Now, if I understand your paper correctly, uh, the president, the executive branch can flip a switch and make that happen.
2: Well, it probably wouldn't be as fast as that. Most things in the bureaucracy are not. But um, drug reimportation is basically allowing Americans to purchase drugs from other countries. In the Medicare bill, the drug bill that was passed in 2003, Congress did provide the president the authority to allow drug reimportation. Now, they put a lot of caveats to protect the safety of Americans who would participate in such a program. That is a place where if the current administration wishes, they could try to try drug reimportation.
1: In the context of the changes people are talking about right now and what the president is is calling for from Congress, Mm -hmm. a lot of this sounds like, um, I don't know, just like tinkering, you know. Imagine the president were to go with every trick in the book here, and try and make all these changes, whatever he can do. What do you imagine that would amount to?
2: Well, again, it might be an unsatisfying answer, but it would be a good amount of tinkering. He
1: can put that on his uh, his uh, reelection billboards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good amount <laughs> yeah. of tinkering for American yeah. health care.
2: Unfortunately, you know, the president can only do so much. It's going to have to be Congress that steps in if we want, you know, health reform.
1: Can you imagine uh, this president or any president uh, really going for it at the bureaucratic level after uh, a bruising and lost fight uh, with Congress on this stuff? Or does he just sort of want to move on to other things and forget it ever happened?
2: Personally, I I think that would be the best strategy. And that was one thing that, that President Clinton did very well. He took his knocks after health reform died in 1994 and he got up and took a number of steps using his executive authority to make sure that health policies were being enacted. It got some attention, but given the amount of progress he was making, I was I was definitely surprised myself that it didn't get more press attention when, when it was happening.
1: So your paper tries uh, wisely, I'm sure, to stay entirely in the safe zone here, stuff that the president <laughs> can do that's that's pretty clearly <laughs> legal and, and precedented. Uh, I want to ask you, though, what if... He really wanted to push it. You know, even if that meant uh, a court challenge uh, for taking it too far, are there things that you could could imagine might be on the margins of what might be possible here?
2: The reality is, if there's no statutory authority to begin with, there's just no way that he could start. So, well, the
1: last administration got creative, one could say, it, in, in other areas of the law.
2: I think it's a little bit harder in domestic policy. You know, I think... Uh, And I assume you're referring to the Guantanamo and other sort of national security issues. Well, sure. On a
1: domestic level, it's not all classified, and um, national security is not at stake. So
2: exactly.
1: But if we were to declare war on the health insurance industry, maybe an executive (laughs) proclamation along those lines, (laughs) then we could get some action.
2: Maybe, maybe. It's all about what you call a war. Yeah.
1: Madhu, this has been uh, really terrific. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's been fun.
1: Madhu Chug is who that is. She wrote this paper called Executive Authority to Reform Health, Options and Limitations. She until recently was uh, clerking for the U.S. Court of Appeals in District of Columbia, and at the moment she's choosing between lawyer jobs, I believe. That paper that she wrote is making the rounds on Capitol Hill and among uh, high-powered people in D.C., or so we're told by a comment on our blog from Paul Begala, CNN crossfire guy and uh, Democratic strategist uh, or someone masquerading as Paul Begala. But the question we've had is, who would masquerade as Paul Begala, really? So we think it's the real Paul Begala. And that's cool that he visited our blog and listened to uh, the version of this interview that we posted. Now, sticking with our health-related theme that we've got going in this episode, let's move on to a little more practical, hands-on kind of segment. So you've got swine swine flu. H1N1 influenza, of course, for all of you purists and thin-skinned hog farmers who listen to our podcast. I actually thought I had it over this past weekend uh, for a little while there between Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Turned out I didn't. Uh, I'm fine, obviously, and back in the office, uh, boldly infecting everybody with whatever it was that I did have. Uh, But many, many people do. And so this uh, idea here is very simple. I posted a note on our Facebook page for all of our Facebook fans and said, hey, anybody got swine flu? One of the people I heard back from was uh, Miranda Grimm, who first posted that she thought her son might have it. She was taking him to the doctor, and then a little while later said, yep, he's got it. And so I just uh, heard back from her saying it was okay to give her a call, and so let's do that. Miranda Grimm, by the way, is in uh, Louisville, Kentucky.
3: Please enjoy the music until your party answers the phone.
1: That's nice.
0: Uh, that was quick.
1: Hi, Miranda. How are you?
0: Hi, Jeff.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is Jeff Horwich, out uh, at In the How Loop. are
0: you? Nice to meet you.
1: Good. Well we don't we don't waste any time. Um uh,
0: I guess not.
1: So how does it feel to be uh one of the one of the lucky ones or one of the, one of the lucky families, special people?
0: I, <laughs> I only freaked out when the doctor said it. Well, I mean, you know, she was kinda of mumbling. I, I I could tell she was trying to make light of it.
1: And let's just give people details here. Who's who's sick with it?
0: It's my oldest. His name's Hunter, and he's 10. Okay. I have a 7-year-old son named Lucas and a 2-year-old daughter. Okay. they Jane. The weird thing was I had both boys scheduled for a physical because it was just time. So they were scheduled for that, and then he woke up with this raging fever yesterday morning, and I didn't think anything of it because he's had lots of strep and lots of ear infections, and at some point... Uh, one of the nurses came out and said, you need to go be with your older son because he just got sick in the room with his brother. I said, oh, mm-hmm. oh really? And went back, and, and he just had turned green, and his fever had spiked four degrees in a matter of 15 minutes.
1: Wow. So tell me more about your, your interaction with the uh, with the doctor. You said they were almost in in the way they delivered the news.
0: I mean, you know, she said, oh, yeah, it's the flu. It's, it's H1N1. You know, she was trying to make so light of it, she was speaking almost too low.
1: Like she didn't want to freak you out? Is that why you think?
0: Uh, yes, exactly. Which, of course, I did anyway. Uh-huh. Eventually, um, it was just like she explained it to me the way a couple of my other friends explained it to me that it had been blown out of proportion and that some doctors were diagnosing it as a virus or not at all yep. because it was so mild, Like which he's proving to me today because he's just not that sick.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, um, how's, uh, how's he doing? How's he been feeling? He's great. Can I talk with him for a minute?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all
1: right. If he's up for it.
0: Okay. Here he is.
1: Hi. Hey Hunter, how you feeling?
0: I'm fine.
1: You are fine. Well, you, you didn't sound like you were feeling so fine yesterday though, huh? Um,
0: I stomach hurts and my head hurts and my throat hurts.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I I won't uh, I won't keep you too long. So, your mom was a little freaked out yesterday. What did you what did you think when uh, the doctor said that you had the famous swine flu?
0: Um, I was really scared because I Heard it all over the news and
1: stuff. So the fact that everybody's talking about it so much is enough to enough to freak you out a little bit. Yeah. Do you have any friends who've who've got it as well that you know of?
0: Um. Yeah. There's this girl at school that had it, but
1: she got over it. Oh. Are you having a decent time hanging out at home with your mom? Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah. It is really. Good. It it's not as fun as it seems.
1: <laughs> no. Well, I would say from where I'm sitting, it 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 never seemed a whole lot of fun. <laughs> to get yes. uh, to to get swine flu. So to all the people uh, out there who think they might might be getting it, what advice would you have? What would you have to tell them?
0: I would say just stay at home, don't go anywhere, and then eat lots of soup and stuff to make it go away.
1: Sounds like good advice. Hunter's Home Remedy. Hey, thanks a lot, Hunter. Nice to talk to you, man.
0: Bye. Hello.
1: Hey, Miranda. Sounds like he's holding up all right.
0: He really is.
1: Is it interesting? I'm sure fun is not the word, but to kind of be a part of what's so much in the news right now?
0: It's really surprising. Whatever's happening, you never think it's going to happen to you. When it does, it's like, well, this isn't what I thought at all, and I'm really glad. I mean, for two reasons. Number one, he's already got it. If all the kids get it, then they're over it, and they're not supposed to get it again. And the other thing is just that it wasn't as bad.
1: And that's very good news. Yes, it is. I'm glad he's feeling well, and uh, thanks very much for talking with me for a few minutes, and and thank Hunter again for me.
0: I will. Thanks for calling. You
1: bet, Miranda. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. That is Miranda Grimm in Louisville. Now, we also heard back on her Facebook page from Jill Thompson, who is a little closer to home. She's here in St. Paul, and she had swine flu four weeks ago, but the story doesn't really end there. So I have her on the other line uh, at her office, I think. And Jill, how are you feeling?
4: today i'm uh, i'm feeling a little exhausted my cough is still there i'm contemplating calling the doctor again and seeing if i should do round two of antibiotics
1: but you sound a little you sound a little rough uh yeah <laughs> let's clarify for people you, you are you are not working and going about your daily life now with the swine flu
4: No, Mm -hmm. I have passed the swine flu stage and I'm on to the secondary infection stage, which I have confirmed with my doctor is not contagious.
1: (laughs) How common a thing is that?
4: The doctor initially told me that the flu had damaged my lungs and, you know, that I was at a higher risk for bronchitis or pneumonia. Um, So I don't know, like, statistically how common that is, but that's
1: what I was told. Sounds like you you got it bad.
4: Well, you know, in a way, I consider myself lucky because I didn't end up in the hospital or anything. You know, it was I was pretty knocked out, though, like the first. 10, 11 days, I was in bed.
1: The first 10, 11 days? Yeah. So this was not was... blowing over in like a, a week or no. less. Like, wow. so... See So I just got off the phone with a, a mother in Kentucky whose, whose son has it, and he had a you know big fever spike yesterday, but today he's up and about watching cartoons. Oh, um, that's
4: great for him.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, well, there are so many different ways this can strike people, I guess. Uh, it doesn't just glance off everybody, clearly.
4: Right, and we don't know, but I think that my boyfriend may have had um we got sick around the same time he never went to a doctor though because he hardly got sick at all now he has an immune system of steel hmm. so you know he took half a day off of work and then was fine
1: did you have no so, choice uh eventually after what four weeks now uh you're back at work did you have to come back
4: um i was quickly running out of time off you know my work wanted uh, a note saying that I wasn't, you know, contagious anymore and I could work again.
1: Now my son's daycare requires a doctor's note, you know, if, Mm -hmm. if the child is sick uh, to come back or a doctor's note saying he's not infectious or, you know, uh, doesn't have swine flu. Um, your, your workplace required that.
4: They did. And that was new. Interesting. Um, HR called me at home. Um, I had told my boss what I was out with and then they told HR and, um, They called and said, um, you know, we're trying to put a new policy in place because of this flu. So, you know, if you're out three days or more and um, have seen a doctor, then we ask that you get a note to return.
1: Interesting. I wonder how common that precaution is is becoming with companies. I don't know, but
4: I would imagine that with how scared some people are getting, (laughs) it might become more common practice.
1: Do you have any sense of how people... Regard you in the office now, having having been uh, um, the girl who got swine flu.
4: <laughs> Mostly, people are just joking around about it. I got a funny uh, email forwarded to me; it had um, all the Winnie the Pooh characters in it, and uh, Piglet was tied up and set aside from all the other characters who were all wearing face masks. <laughs> you know, but for the most part, I. If I do tell people that that's what I was out with, I make sure to immediately say, you know, that I'm not contagious anymore. Show I'm them contagious. the doctor's note. Yeah, exactly. I should carry that around in my pocket with me. Get it framed.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you have a sense of humor about it. I kind of wish you weren't at your desk right now. That breaks yeah, my heart a little bit. I kind of
4: wish that, too. <laughs> at home
1: hanging out or, 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 and getting fed uh, soup from your boyfriend with the immune system of steel. Hope you feel better, and thanks very much for talking with us.
4: Well, thank you for calling. You bet. Bye-bye.
1: Jill Thompson, toughing it out here in St. Paul. Now, also in this batch of uh, replies on our Facebook page when I asked if anybody had swine flu, we got a very logical question from uh, Katie in Minneapolis who asked, how do you know if you've got just plain old flu or the H1N1 swine flu? And I don't have to go very far whenever I have swine flu-related questions because I'm married to a, a healthcare reporter. Uh, Lorna Benson Horwich, (laughs) who works for the Minnesota Public Radio Newsroom. Lorna, thanks for coming by for just a minute to answer the question, Katie's question. How can you tell the difference if you feel like you're sick, whether you have swine flu or just flu flu?
5: Most of the flu that is circulating right now is H1N1. About 98% of it, according to federal officials. They have found a few cases of seasonal flu in the testing that they've done nationally and in Minnesota. But most of the cases right now are H1N1. Oh, so that answers
1: it. If, you, if you've got the flu right now... More you've, than
5: likely, you've got you swine have got H1N1.
1: Hmm. Now, you and I thought that I had swine flu this weekend. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have it.
5: No. Uh, you had all of the... Achiness symptoms in your legs and your arms, and we thought, "Oh no, here we go, mm-hmm. this is it." But then it just sort of nothing else happened, right?
1: I thought maybe I had some special kind of swine flu, which <laughs> is exciting and depressing right. at the same time. But we had that hours of scrambling and right. trying to just keep keeping me away the baby from the away baby. from you mainly. Yeah, yeah. So but it was very um, comforting to find out that right it wasn't swine flu.
5: They say, they say that uh, you will know it. When you have it, just a few hours um, and you will feel as sick as you felt in, you know, maybe years.
1: So if you're just feeling a little droopy, don't get all excited. Right. You're not special.
5: Although, you know, you are supposed to monitor yourself. I mean, it, it doesn't mean, I mean, if you start feeling sick, the recommendation is to kind of, you know, take care of yourself and keep yourself away from other people until you figure out, do you really have this flu and you need to stay away from people or Are you just, you know, suffering from seasonal allergies and you can go back to work the
1: next day or whatever? Well, we've done a good public service here because people aren't hearing anything about swine flu these days. Right. And we needed to bring them some information. Right. Somebody had to do it. All right, (laughs) Lorna, thank you very much. You're welcome. So you've got swine flu. Swine flu. Swine flu. My lovely wife, Lorna, known to radio listeners here in Minnesota as Lorna Benson, of course, her pre era of Jeff name. uh, But if it ain't broke uh, on the radio, don't fix it. And she is very busy these days covering H1N1. And if you want to study up a bit and inform yourself, definitely should check out her coverage. You can find it at mprnewsq.org. One of the many television shows that Lorna refuses to watch with me, and there is quite a list, um, is called Shark Tank. And she just really is not into the whole tension of it. But I'm totally hooked. Anybody else out there watching Shark Tank that's kind of what I thought. It's it's a summer fill-in show on ABC, though I think they are going to continue it into the fall, it looks like, which I'm very excited about. And it looks really cheap to produce. Great thing to just chuck on, you know, to fill airtime in the summer opposite uh, whatever popular program it's opposite. Uh, but it's here's how it works. An entrepreneur or inventor or whoever uh, who needs to raise some money comes before this panel of five venture capitalists who are all sitting on their thrones, uh, pitches the idea, and then... Uh, they are either uh, embraced uh, or fought over or they are brought down to earth by these fabulously wealthy people and dismissed and sent home to cry sad, bitter tears over the uh, soggy, shattered uh, life savings they've invested in their idea that's just been disparaged on national television. It is is—it's uh, riveting to me. Here's a, Here's a little bit I recorded last week. Do you have a projection of what your sales will be this year or next year?
3: We, we've had a rough go of it. Some people might not want to admit what I'm about to say. Calyx is really running on fumes right now. I've put my life savings into this business.
0: How much have you put into this?
3: I've probably put over $100,000 of my own money.
1: Kimberly, who's the leader in this market right now?
3: There's really five key competitors. Champion, Nike. Under Armour, Adidas, and Moving
2: Comfort. Oh, they're not well known.
6: I can't decide if I'd rather stick needles in my eyes or give you $125,000. Do you know how tough it's going to be to gain any market share? I cannot put my money in harm's way here. There is no hope. You're going to zero with this.
7: I'm out.
1: Now, they don't all end so brutally, of course. This moment right here is just like broke your heart Uh, but one of the really interesting things about it is watching these uh, venture capitalists talk with each other and challenge each other about their humanity or or lack thereof when it comes to money uh anyway shark tank is i think it's moving to tuesday nights this fall i would definitely recommend checking it out just my little endorsement there in a nice way thinking about entrepreneurs and inventors of getting us to our next segment here ben bernanke and others are saying uh, last week and again this week that the recession technically is likely over Now, of course, that doesn't mean much to people who are still looking for work and people who may still be losing their jobs and uh, suffering otherwise from the effects of the downturn. But that's what they're saying. And if we are going to genuinely climb out of these uh, economic doldrums, it's going to take American ingenuity. Because as economists have been saying for years, more and more, we're not a country that manufactures stuff, that makes stuff. We're the country that invents stuff.
6: And uh, if you want to see for yourself how inventive we are,
1: just go to your local inventors meeting. Why, if it isn't our producer, Sandon Totten, I'm (laughs) pretending to be so surprised to see you. Thank you very much for coming by. You actually went last week and dropped by, uh, what was it here? The Minnesota Inventors Network. Which is this big group of uh, inventors here in the state, right? Yes, so uh, they meet every month. And what kind of stuff are these folks inventing to pull us out of our economic doldrums?
6: Well, there are like sixty people at this meeting, and just as many, if not more, like gizmos and gadgets and ideas people had. Outdoor speaker systems that kind of blend in with your garden, you know, like rocks and plants that play music. Or this one lady had a nifty tool that allows you to paint behind a toilet. Uh, and uh, there's a guy just who invented, a toilet. Well, and like you know. Toilet like things, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, so she's got that, and then there's you know a better horse feeder. One guy even had like a magnetic uh, based mass transit system.
1: So it, it runs the gamut. What's it like though? This is the the more important question, I guess. What's it like for these folks being an inventor in this economy? Well, it's it's weird because
6: right now it is totally awesome to be an inventor, and it totally sucks at the same time. Mm. But well, not for the reasons you'd expect.
1: Okay. Well, you're here to explain how that crazy conundrum could possibly exist. Right, well let's take a specific example. This one inventor I met,
6: Pam Cole, she came up to me, she's really excited about her invention and uh, she wanted to show it off.
3: But I just wanna preface it with it's a medical device, okay? So we're gonna have a conversation about something um, sensitive, but you can handle it, I'm sure, right?
6: We'll see, I guess. Okay.
3: (laughs) So this is an intravaginal cooling device for when a woman has vaginal inflammation. Why would a woman have vaginal inflammation? You're just asking.
6: Not something I'm very experienced with.
3: (laughs) That's a good thing. (laughs) So it's when women experience a yeast infection. The tissues can become inflamed, swollen, sore, burn, itch. It's terrible. If you actually ask some women, they'll tell you it's terrible.
1: You know, I have been looking for a good conversation starter with uh, some of the women around <laughs> the office that I don't know very well. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll have to check into it. Well, you and Pam
6: would be in luck because uh, the statistics show that 75% of all women will have yeast infection at some point in their lives. Just so good luck for us. Right. Or, you know, it's, it's good luck for Pam because that's a huge potential market she can tap into. Sure. She's got an idea now. You know, she's got uh, her prototype all made up. She should be like right on her way, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not exactly. You're going to hit a snag. With the U.S. Patent Office.
3: You know, we finally officially filed in 2005, but they're really inundated. Apparently, they're really overwhelmed, so I've been waiting for my patent. For
6: four years?
3: Yes, for four years. And you
6: still haven't gotten it approved yet?
3: No, still have not completely had it approved. And no one will really want to invest with you unless you've protected the property, so I've sort of been waiting on that.
1: Okay, so in this time of great economic need, our you know, engines of growth are sputtering the U.S. Patent Office is dropping the ball,
6: right? And apparently, they've been dropping it since 1992. But it's not their fault. Well, completely. Uh, Congress, since 92, has been taking any extra money the Patent Office made and siphoning it off to like a slush fund for their use. So the Patent Office can't grow. They just don't have any money to hire new people. Hmm. This stopped recently. But they're still way behind. And so there's like a backlog of, you know, up to six years worth of
1: patents that need to be gone through. So you started out uh, here saying that this was kind of the best of times and the worst of times for inventors. Uh, That sounds kind of crappy. What's the upside for these folks? Well, inventors tell me that right now
6: companies, they need to get out of recession, too. And the way to do that is by releasing new products. You know, novelty needs to be in the market. So Mm -hmm. they're buying new ideas if they're out there. And Pam Cole and other inventors told me that the services that inventors need to get their product out there, they're down on the luck, too, and they need business.
3: It's frustrating, but at the same time, I have to say I'm really inspired by, with this economy, how much the manufacturers and the people who provide services to people like us are willing to work with us, going out of their way to make it easy for you to do business with them. So we're getting a lot of things for free.
6: So, like, packaging, the people who make your prototype, the guys who are actually going to manufacture what you are trying to sell, all these places, they want to cut you a deal because, you know, they need the work.
1: So, as uh, much of an advantage as that might be, you know, this is a hard path for people who are trying to be inventors, and yet we need them for the economy to succeed. After going to this meeting, did you get a good sense of why they keep at it? If I were them,
6: I would have given up a long time ago. But these are not your normal, everyday one of the Mill American. There's something crazy kind of driving them. They all sort of had this look in their eye. Pam puts it this way.
3: There's just something that just keeps eating and gnawing at me. I know it sounds kind of corny, but I feel like I'm the person that's supposed to bring this to the world. You know, like I am the representative of the idea fairy, and this is my thing to give to the world.
1: So when the idea fairy shows up in the middle of the night and says, Pam, I have a (laughs) vagina cooler for you to pedal." You just got to run with it. Yeah, you got to listen. Well, not, uh, not that you can run with it, but you know, figuratively run with it.
6: And, and hopefully it'll get a little bit easier, too, because, uh, you know, just recently this summer, Obama appointed someone new to be in charge of the patent office. There's a patent reform bill in Congress, and, uh, you know, that can make things easier as well. So hopefully, you know, we'll all be able to take our million dollar ideas and actually make that million before time runs out.
1: And you didn't catch my uh, run with it joke just a minute ago, but that's probably for the best. Sandon Totten, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. And if any of you didn't catch it, it's uh, really not worth it. Uh, Let's dip back into health policy here, shall we? Uh, Just because that sounds like so much fun, and we're only going to do it for a few minutes. We had our first big question uh, earlier in the show about health insurance reform, this question of what's plan B, you know, if Congress uh, can't get a deal done and everything falls apart. Uh, And here's another one that occurred to me uh, this week. I may have been brushing my teeth at the time. What about your mouth. What about proper dental care? What about dental insurance? All these proposals in Congress for insurance mandates, purchasing exchanges, the public option. Is dental care included in any of this? I really haven't heard deadly squat about that. So somebody's on the phone with me right now to answer the question. Dr. Burton Edelstein is a professor of dentistry and public health at Columbia. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. With the bills in Congress, all the ideas floating around there, are we talking about reforming the dental insurance system as well here?
7: I'm happy to report that all five of the committees that have taken up health care reform legislation have included a required dental benefit for children. Unfortunately, there's not been a dental benefit required for adults, and at this point it doesn't look like Congress is going to uh, actively endorse coverage for adults, only for children.
1: Now, I have uh, two kinds of insurance, as many Americans do. I have my medical insurance and I have my dental insurance. Uh, the changes that may come out of Washington here will affect one for me, but, but not the other at all, not my dental insurance uh, protections and my plans and my options and my safety net, none of that, as, as things stand right now.
7: To adults, no. Because of our bifurcated medical-dental separate insurance approach, we've essentially ended up with the mouth as an orphan organ. For example, if one were to have an abscess in their cheek and the source of that abscess were the ear or the eye, uh, it would be a covered service under a medical plan. But if the source of that infection was an abscess tooth and the patient didn't have dental coverage, then they'd be plain out of luck.
1: Why do we have these two separate insurance systems historically for your mouth and then another one for every other part of your body?
7: It is curious, and it is the outcome of a separation of the professions that happened in the mid-19th century. It is lore, but the the story goes, proto-dentists, the people who ultimately became the first academic dentists and established the modern dental profession, came to it from the history, the legacy of the barber-surgeon. It is said that proto-dentists, these barber-surgeons, were rebuffed by the people who organized the first medical school in Baltimore and simply went down the street and literally found another location on the same block and established the first dental school in the United States, the Baltimore College of Dentistry. Since that time, the two have essentially uh, run along on parallel
1: tracks. Maybe maybe apocryphal, maybe not, but uh, we're still dealing with the legacy of that even in... Uh congressional lawmaking today, I
7: guess. Indeed. And the message to Congress is that the mouth is an integral component of so many of our body systems. Having coverage is as essential for that body part as for any other body part.
1: And in these times of great political division, the fact that the mouth is important, I think that's something we can all get behind. Indeed. (laughs) And Dr. Burton Edelstein, thank you so much uh, for helping us with the question. Dr. Edelstein is a professor of dentistry and public health at Columbia and chair of the Children's Dental Health Project in Washington, D.C. They're online at cdhp.org. Not surprising, I'm sure, but worth mentioning that many more people are uninsured when it comes to dental coverage than medical insurance. And the good dentist uh, does tell us there was an amendment that has passed a committee in congress to ask the secretary of health and human services to study whether the government might do any good by wading into adult dental insurance then get back to congress uh, in a year or so. Well, we passed a nice little milestone here at In the Loop a few days ago, 1500 fans on our Facebook page. And you know, we talk about it a lot. We use people from Facebook a lot and we're we're proud of uh, what we're doing there, so it just kind of was steadily approaching. We didn't have to work too hard for it and It's very exciting. It's good to be growing. Trying to figure out how to mark the occasion. And of course, the song seemed in order, right? Eventually settled on an approach. And I hope you like it. 1,500 Facebook fans clicked a thing to follow in the loop. And it makes me feel so good that with a tear I now salute you as a group here's to you and I'd thank you one by one but frankly we'd be here all day so I'll thank the latest 20 of you based on what your profiles say which because I'm not actually friends with you on Facebook is not very much thank you to Jessica from Tampa Bay I like your argyle hat very cool Donna hey looks like a walking on some sand dunes or something where the heck was that it looks awesome Valerie, spell it with an I. That's really cool. The University of Iowa is where Natalie went to school. Go Hawkeyes. Thank you, Mickey from Boston with the Celtics jersey and the Celtics cap. KG Rules. Raghav, is that your son there? You've got sitting on Ronald McDonald's lap. Very cute. Louise, you just got married in a tux. You're looking nice hearth in those sunglasses you look like miami vice and i mean that Jonna from indiana that's one crazy cake you got beth from boston you're so private i can't see your profile shot carrie from cleveland there are two people equally prominent in your profile picture but that's okay because you're both hot <clears throat> thank you janice from milwaukee Without you here, it wouldn't be the same. And to Nixius from Puerto Rico. I'm just sorry, I can't pronounce your name. I think. Thanks to Mandy and Michelle for proudly representing blondes. And to Kara in her profile picture posing with the Fonz. The actual Henry Winkler. Very nice. Thank you, Ipta Hall from Detroit. Yeah, that crazy couch you're sitting on looks fun. Tara from Kansas City. I like your pentagram tattoo. I like your gun, which I suspect is not real. Teresa from Peoria almost brings us to the end. And are you noticing like I am? We've got a lot more women fans than men. But the fan who brought us up to 1500 is a guy Oh Yeah, he's Jeff, just like me, and he's from North Ridgedale, Ohio He describes himself as cranky, grouchy, kind of melancholic Hey, that's cool Welcome to the group You're in the loop Thank you, Facebook fans And if you want to see a video, it is on, good golly, our Facebook page. We can get you there quick at loopfacebook.net. And you can visit us uh, on our normal website and find the podcast and all kinds of other great things at intheloopshow.net. I just spent uh, three minutes thanking our Facebook fans, but let me say thank you, of course, to everyone who listens to the podcast. Those numbers are growing as well, and we're deeply grateful. Sandon Totten and I produce this show. We get some help from our buddy Anna Weggle. I'm Jeff Horwich, feeling good, swine flu free, and I will talk to you next week.